Welcome to ACME Talks and Live Events. You are listening to a podcast from the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. This talk has been recorded in front of a live studio audience. This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes, which may not be suitable for younger audiences. And the opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME. Good morning, everybody. There's a lot of you here this morning. Uh, we'd lost our guest this morning, unfortunately, but he's, he's turned up, which is fantastic. Um, so well, welcome, everybody. Um, we had a wonderful day yesterday. I think many of you were here, and um, you know, today is going to be a real treat as well. And it goes all the way through till 10 o'clock at night. If you want to uh, stay for the late night, um, the gallery is open until 10. So uh, welcome. My name's Conrad Bodman. I'm a head of exhibitions here, and I'm the lead curator on the Game Masters exhibition. So if you haven't had a chance to go down to see the show yet, please do. Um, as I say, it's open until 10. This is the third of our Melbourne Winter Masterpieces um, exhibits uh, following the really successful Pixar and Tim Burton exhibition, and uh, we're really delighted with the response to the exhibition already. Um, Game Masters is a really important collaboration with, um, with Film Victoria, and I'd like to thank Film Victoria for all their support. Um, they're our sister agency and, of course, a, a key supporter of this event, so thanks to them. Um, so I know most of you have already visited the exhibition, probably. It was a great day for us yesterday. Um, the world premiere of Game Masters, which starts at Acme and then is going to be touring around the world over the next few years, and we're very excited about that. Um, when I first came up with the idea to do the show, I really wanted to kind of, um, you know, really focus on a series of um, major auteur developers and really explore the whole game design thought process and the, some of the technology behind the games too. Um, so Game Masters is really a sort of a, a kind of culmination of about two years' work to pull this together, and it's been, you know, a fantastic journey, and in particular kind of... Um, and a, a real honour and pleasure to meet all of the uh, game developers that we've included in the show. So the exhibition's uh, divided into three sections. We've got uh, about 16 arcade games, like classic arcades from the 70s and 80s, and the first section called Arcade Heroes. The second section looks at 14 major international developers, and Tim and Warren are uh, amongst those. And then finally, we have a big section on um, contemporary indie developers, and there's some really beautiful work in that section. Uh, uh, which is all sort of designed in a beautiful, comfy lounge setting. Um, so spend some time in there if you, if you, if you have time. Um, so to move on to, to our guests, um, of course, Tim needs no introduction. I'm sure many of you have seen him around over the next, next few days. Um, He's been involved in a huge number of games throughout his year, but of course started at, at LucasArts. And if you go down um, into the gallery, you'll see his um, beautiful hand-drawn CV that he produced when he got the job at LucasArts. And uh, that was his kind of entree into the, into the business, really. Um, he started as a tester on early Indiana Jones games before working as a writer and programmer on The Secret of Monkey Island. While waiting for the final game script, Tim popped his own humorous quips into the dialogue as placeholders. And the game's designer, Ron Gilbert, was so amused by this, he changed the game from being serious to funny. It went on to become one of the most loved adventure games that's ever been created. At LucasArts, Tim created Manic Mansion, Day of the Ten Tentacle, Full Throttle, and Grim Fandango before leaving 2000 to set up his own uh, production company, Double Fine Productions. It's hugely successful and titles include Psychonauts and the heavy metal-themed action Brutal Legend featuring Jack Black. So we've got all of those games down in the gallery, so you can check them out if you haven't played them before. 
More recently, Double Fine has focused on um, smaller downloadable titles, including um, costume, costume quests, stacking, and Iron Brigade. And, of course, if you've been checking out the news re recently, you'll have um, seen Tim and Double Fine's kind of tremendous success with Kickstarter, and I'm sure he's going to be talking about that uh, today, too. <laughs> so, just to introduce Paul, I'm sure many of you know Paul. Um, he's a freelance writer and independent game developer. Um, he's worked as a programmer, designer, writer, and teacher uh, for companies such as Atari, Inter Inter um, Infinite Interactive, a a AIE, and Chocolate Liberation Front, and the ABC. Um, he's an active me member of the um, you know, game development community in Australia, and of course is the, uh, the director of the Free Play Independent Games Festival, which is taking place later on in the year, which we're really excited about. So it's great to have Paul here too. So welcome everybody. Um, this panel is going to run directly into the next one, so if you can kind of hang around rather than rushing out afterwards, we'll run straight into the, the next one. But um, welcome to you gentlemen, and thanks for coming this morning. Over to you, Paul. Hi, everyone. Thanks for coming out uh, on... What day is this? I've, I've lost track. Is it Friday? Friday. Friday. <laughs> Thank you. Audience participation this early in the morning. Oh. That's always a good sign. Um, it is my enormous pleasure to, to share the stage with Tim Schaefer. Were you flexing your muscles there? Yeah, well, because uh, Eddie. Oh. Yeah. That's, that's uncanny. It was like he was there <sighs> yeah. and, and sitting next to me oh, briefly. Yeah. Oh. Um, <laughs> this uh, this session um, is is about story and about writing. Um, and I wrote I wrote a little intro, and I almost pulled a quote out. Um, but there, it feels like every six months someone comes along and says, "Hey, you know what? Video games can't tell stories." Um, and we go through this argument all the time. Um, and the, those arguments tend to ignore the fact that ever since video games were created, people have been using them to tell stories. It's almost as though they just ignore. They got like their little blinkers on and it's just like oh this, this can't be true this can't be true <laughs> um and so i wanted to talk about that and i also wanted to talk about um the practicalities of writing for games because i think when you have someone like tim you want to find out what do you actually produce every day that makes your games what so kind of pencil we use yeah what kind of pencils yeah, you use what kind of paper stuff. is it yellow paper is it loose leaf um get into that like do you use a word processor or a typewriter mm -hmm. Um, do you have a skull on your desk to remind you about your impending moral mortality? I do have a skull. I do. Um, those are the <laughs> questions that we're going to uh, get to <laughs> as we go. Um, so I'm going I'm I'm to ask him a bunch of questions, and then we're going to open it up to, to audience questions. Um, and that's that's pretty much how it's going to go this time in the morning. That sounds easy. It sounds easy. It sounds this easy. won't hurt at all, you guys. Um, so I want to start. I want to start with pre-production. Uh, and I want to start with what the first thing that you produce is when you when you sort of have your idea and you know what the game you're going to make is the first little sketch that you write or the first sort of piece of documentation you produce or is it a meeting? What mm -hmm. what's the first kind of the bit on the fire? Uh, I am um, <clears throat> I you know pretty the the early days of having an idea are often tied to um, building my own confidence around the idea. Because we all have ideas during the day, and they're like, that's, that's silly. That's a silly idea. Or else they in, instantly strike you as brilliant until the next day, and then they, <laughs> they seem kind of silly. So there's a long period where I'm just holding on to this idea. Sometimes, like with Brutal Legend, for like 15 years, it's like, someday I'm going to make that game. you know. And, um, <clears throat> and then I start a process of, of, of uh, like I get a notebook out, like a, little, a spiral notebook and a pen, and I start writing about it. And I don't know if any backers of our, um, anybody on our backer forum, yeah, thanks for backing, woo! You're awesome. But I did a post on our backer forums, which is about 
free writing, which is just something that, I, that um, like a seventh grade English teacher got me started doing. It was just kind of like, take a pen and paper, and now for the next two minutes you have to write. Your pen has to constantly move the entire time. You can never stop. And people are like, well, I can't think that fast. And like, well, then you just write some nonsense words. Like, really just write rutabaga, rutabaga over and over again. But that you just have to keep writing and writing and writing and writing. And um, it was a really interesting exercise because at first you do kind of write just dumb stuff, repeated words, and, and then pretty soon it's just like this open. By the end of it, you're just like open flow of writing, and you're thinking faster than you're writing. You're desperately trying to keep up with all the thoughts you're having. And um, it, it, it kind of really breaks the, um, it breaks the ice in terms of just getting ideas down on paper. It's a great way to start because I'm a big procrastinator, you know, and, I, um, and writing is the easiest thing to put off and just – you know, when you have a paper to write out, you know, you always write to the last, I'll wait to the last minute because I have to get a certain amount of, like, terror in my blood before I get really motivated to write something like that. But the free writing, because you feel like you don't, oh, I'm not in the mood to write, or I'm not, uh, I don't have any ideas, or it's just not, today is not a good day for this, I'll do this tomorrow. But if you actually sit down and you start flowing and writing, 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 but, like, the, maybe the, the second page, pretty soon you realize you're getting into the work you need to be doing, you're talking about it. Sometimes just out of being bored of hearing your own voice talk about how you don't <laughs> want to write it. And you just you just you just start writing it. So that's so by um, you can see in the documentary we're doing, just like just, just fill up this book until I look like the serial killer in seven. You know, just like <laughs> notes and notes and notes and notes. And I have this whole system for like, if I have a good idea, I draw this like vertical line next to the word, so I find it later. And I, if it's really good, I put a star next to it. Or if it's a question mark, I have all these like little notations. So so later at some point, I usually pull this into a document that I would share with somebody. And so I go back through these notes and pull out the, the useful parts. And you were actually the serial killer in Seven as well. That's <coughs> like you were the original choice for that character. <laughs> 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 not, not to oh. self, no jokes. <laughs> um, and so from those initial outlines and sketches... Loosely based, loosely, loosely based, based on, on Tim. Um, and from those initial notes, like what's the... Like, do they tend to just be, what are they? Are they, like, character bios? Are they plot ideas? Are they sort of a mix of everything? Yeah, they're kind of a mix of everything. I, um... You know, I was looking back at my Grim Fandango notebook, and I had, um, like, I wrote this scene. It was nothing to do with the game. It was, like, death in a hospital room, talking to some guy who's going to die, and his family is there, but they can't see death, and the guy can see death. And there's a whole scene with death and the guy, and he's like, I'm going to take you now. And um, this kind of could have been, I guess, a scene from, from Grimm, and but it was just, like, a practice scene. But it was really helpful, and I think. I mean, I, like, um, I, I always feel like there's this linear progression of ideas in my head. Like, I mean, even though you think about a whole bunch of things, I have this, it's like more like a superstition. I believe these ideas kind of get clogged in the pipe, and you need to just flush them out by writing them down, you know? So maybe that scene was good, maybe it was bad, but I just had to get rid of it because mm-hmm. it was keeping me from, like, thinking of the next thing I needed to think of and just writing them all down. And sometimes it's like, um, like, name ideas. Like, the first thing I actually thought about for Brutal Legend was a name, Brutal Legend. Like, that was, that was like, I wonder what that would be. That sounds, like, so cheesy but awesome. Like, <laughs> that could be a great... And so but sometimes it's like... Um, it could be the name of the character. It could be a visual thing. Like I can imagine the cover of the box or scenes come to you or just a weird gameplay mechanic that you just think would be satisfying. You don't know why or what the game with a character would be like, but you just think it would be fun to move objects around in a certain way. You know, so it could be anything. And you find yourself going back to those like, <coughs> like repeatedly for future games or do you pretty much just go, these are the brutal legend ideas or these are the psychonaut ideas? I mean, I... I um, then when I started this, uh, w- what the project that we're doing with the Kickstarter, it was I went back in old notebooks and I was like, let's see here, let's just like let's try to remember all the things that because you, you have some ideas that you just kind of like okay I'll come back to that someday and you forget. But I was actually going back through and like gathering up some of the ideas that I, you know, um, 
wanted. And often what happens, like with this game or with Brutal Legend, there's like two different ideas in my head. And I was like, oh my gosh, those could be the same. Those could fit together and be really good together. So, I mean, so that, that first document that you, you then produce, the like, so you just take those ideas and sort of type them up and show them to people. Who are the people who you show them to? And have you spoken about it before you show them, or is it just a surprise, like spring it on them? Uh, <laughs> you really kind of go with the feeling of it. Like I said, this is about confidence at this point. I still think the idea, I, don't, I have no idea if it's good or bad. So I try and tend to the, like the nicest people I know. <laughs> it sounds silly. But because I've had the experience of like, okay, I'm going to pitch this to someone. And, you know, the first words out of someone's mouth can decide what I do with that idea for the next five years. Um, like, uh, I say, I have this idea. And if someone goes like, huh, yeah, okay. I'll just like, oh, <laughs> And like that, um, that has happened to me where I put an idea aside for like five years because the first person I told did not get excited about it. And, and, and um, and that can be like a bad, uh, an erroneous, that's like not necessarily the most, believe it or not, might not be the most scientific way to go about testing an <laughs> idea. But um, it's, that, it's that confidence, because that doesn't give you the confidence to talk to the second person. Because yeah. you're like, ugh. So um, I'll tend to, like with, a, like with this Kickstarter game, the first person I told about, I had told somebody about the idea for the story like, by, like six years ago. And they did that. They were like, hmm, hmm, okay. And then, um, and then, and the, the frustrating thing is later they'll tell you, like, oh, I really like that idea. That really made me think. And you're like, well, why didn't you say that at the time? I, okay. So, um, and this time I was going to pitch it around. I purposely picked uh, Scott Campbell because Scott Campbell's our art director. Uh, if you've ever met him or saw his videos, he's like this really nice guy. He's a very nice guy. And, and, I, um, and he liked it. But, and, and that's not the most scientific method either, but it, it, you, at least, you need like this bare minimum amount of confidence to get your ideas to the point where you could talk to a room full of, like, say, seven people. Mm. And then you can start getting like, you know, people's responses to it, and then you, you talk to more and more people, and producing your pitching the company, because eventually you're going to have to go like, um, on a stage like this or at a press conference. So you're going to have to you know, talk to the world, and that, that's like, you know, like you've got to really be um, confident at that mm. point. So, so you talk to people who... Um, it's not like you don't want them to say anything bad about the, the game. But Scott, um, he actually he was talking about he, t- um, besides being an artist, he likes to do improv, improv comedy. He lives in New York and he took improv comedy lessons. And he's um, uh, and you know he talks about um, how they teach you about um, yes anding. Have you ever heard that? Yeah, yeah. Yes anding, and I make fun of it in this um, Loch Ness monster d- fake documentary with anyway. anyway <laughs> so. Um, uh, the, and that concept is if you're doing an improv scene, you say, okay, put up your hands, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to rob you. You don't be like, mm, no, 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 um, I'm a robber. Like, you don't say, no, 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 you're a, you, know, you, don't, you don't say no. You know, yeah. in, in improv, you never say no to what the other person's come up with. You say yes, and I'm also a robber, or something like that. You, know, you, don't, you don't break the flow, and that's, that's really important in brainstorming when you're, when you're working with people in a creative environment. Like, when you're, you're talking about your game ideas, you don't want them to say, no, that's stupid because that's just like this block. This is mm. complete block to the creative thing. You might you just say yes, and there's something else that makes me think of, and that character could also be a Loch Ness monster, for example. But um, that's just important when you get when you get together in a room and you're all brainstorming. It's one of the most fun parts of making a game, I think, is when you're just you get together. Um, depending on what style of game it is, like for an adventure game, you could just brainstorm puzzles every day storing puzzles weaving them together maybe just for grim it was a group of like four of us in this room every afternoon and we had this the rule we had just had to make two puzzles a day and um 
it could just be really fun because you're just joking around mm. and you're just you can be off topic a lot but if you have two puzzles by the end of the day you've gotten your work done but the, the main thing is you can't just say no that's a stupid idea you just have to add to it and add to it and throw out more and more ideas cool and so what what form does that Actually, I was going to ask another question. So, like, when people have said, no, that's a bad idea, and then later on you go out and you get a massive amount of money on Kickstarter, do you ever get the urge to call them up and just go, hey, remember that idea you said was bad? <laughs> Suck on this. I did. I did. I did, <laughs> I did do that. I did do that. I, uh, no, I actually, I found uh, one of our guys at the office, I found his, his year-old email. And I, I said, hey, somebody just proposed the idea of using Kickstarter. What do you think? It was, like, our old business, business person, and he said, you never make as much money as you need on Kickstarter. I found that email. I sent it back to him, just as a joke, because of a joke, just for <laughs> fun. It just like, a, it, ha ha ha! Isn't this funny? This email. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's the answer to that. Um, because so, he said no. You know, you just don't like people who say no all the time. Yeah. <sighs> um, so, in terms of that document, is it different for every project, or do you sort of have a set template where you're like, here's the pitch, here's the the kind of the plot outline, here's the character <clears throat> outline, or do you feel that? Different projects need different things at that stage. Different projects definitely need different things. I mean, I start, you know, you definitely, often the first thing you come up with is like a one-pager or two or seven-pager, like a very short document. Yep. There's like an overview, what's gameplay, what is the main, you know, the, the, the main features of it, just to get people talking to ha and to have meetings. At a certain point, to really like kind of do like the design work that's really core to your project. I think each one kind of needs its own special, special thing. Like, um, talked about and like on, on psychonauts this the fake friendster pages i told you about that the um the, you remember friendster you remember friendster they had that down here before uh, myspace and, and facebook and there was this friendster where it was like um i think the first one of those yeah. and everyone was really excited about the office and for like the first three days people were just obsessed with it and i had to leave the office it, everyone was so distracting that i had to go design this document i had 20 camp kids and i, I wanted to make sure the kids in Psychonauts all had their own personalities. And I was like, how am I going to write a document that shows, like, all the links between, like, who has a crush on who and who's bullying who and who's friends and who's enemies and what their hobbies are? What kind of document would show all these <laughs> social connections? And, like, it was and, – and then I would get distracted by that, and I'd be like, I'm going to go check out my Friendster profile and be like, oh, I should get back to work on this document about social interaction. You know? <laughs> it, it took me, like, like, a day to realize that they were exactly the same. Thing. So I like downloaded these the, the <clears throat> templates of all the Friendster pages, and I made fake Friendster profiles for all the camp kids with like their picture, you know, what kind of music they listen to, and that was just this amazing epiphany for me that like answering a series of questions that someone normally puts on like their social networking profile, like what are your religious views, or what was your, you know, what's your hometown, what bands do you like, what kind of activities do you like, um, what what kind of prof what kind of pictures would you have in your photo gallery? Which is really interesting to mm. put yourself in the mind of a character and be like, what six photo collage would they create if they had a Friendster account? You know, and then and then you have these testimonials, which are like the wall and someone on your Facebook. And um, I could get the characters writing to each other and having dialogues back and forth with each other, and their personalities started to just come not just their personalities, but um, how they interact with each other and who was mean and who was nice and who stuck up for who. And I have all these, like, and also got me starting the, on the temporary dialogue to think about how these characters actually talk. So each one had their own dialogue tags and their own way of, of, um, of speaking. And uh, it was just the best thing I'd, I'd ever done. I mean, it was, so, uh, it was so helpful, you know. And then I actually had it all linked together so you could browse it, and I put it up at work. And, and it was really helpful for the team because they could just browse this thing and just click through all the links and, and do it. It was crazy, and also pretend like they were they were working when they were actually on their friends. Yeah, pages. they're really on their friends. Yeah, pages. yeah. Oh, so anyway, that was special to that game because that's what that was about. But for Brutal Legend, 
I wrote more of like I had read a lot about um, I'd read a lot of ta- like Norse mythology tales because it's all like little Viking mm. ins- you know inspired stuff in there. Cause it's heavy metal, and um, and so I wrote uh, the origin story of this world that I made like from the very beginning as if it was a Norse myth with all the crazy stuff of Ormagodon and um, and you can see that in little bits and pieces here and there in the world um, narrated in an awesome voice when you uncover <laughs> these bits of lore. Um, but that was so. So each game has like uh, probably a different thing you need to do to um, kind of capture what's special about it. I think. Um, so do you have? Uh, are you sort of discovering those little tricks as you go? Um, because we were talking earlier, and you said your you, your degree was comp sci, um, and you sort of it feels like you maybe migrated into the writing side through. I mean, chance is the wrong word, but you know, you sort of it wasn't it doesn't feel planned necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, so are you conscious of? of uncovering all these little tricks that, that work for you as you go because it's quite a common writing exercise to just mm-hmm. answer all these questions about characters mm-hmm. so well, well no one told me about that <laughs> <laughs> um yeah it is i mean I, 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 I feel like i stumbled upon i was following at, at any given point just kind of following what i was most interested in you know what i mean and mm. i was interested in north mythology and writing and just kind of following like a trail of breadcrumbs as I went so it was really just more of a meandering and stumbling you know listening for the quiet clues kind of thing yeah um so at that kind of early stage and, and we'll get an actual production stuff like are you conscious about things like theme and conflict or are you just writing and uncovering those things like based on your ideas no I actually I often start with theme and conflict I guess um as a structural thing, you know, I um, one of the things I read early on before I did Full Throttle was actually just a really, there's a very common screenwriting book called Screenplay by Sid Field. I don't know if you read it. It's yeah. only like this thick, so you might as well just read it. And it's just all about the three-act structure yeah. and things. Like, and um, it's not like you have to follow all these rules, but it is really helpful because you've got to start somewhere. You're like, I've got nothing. Where am I going to start? Okay. And I talked about this yesterday, and if you guys are in that talk about picking just the basic the world, who's my protagonist, who's my antagonist, and then you start to build this, you know, structure of how they, um, you know, they have this conflict and it gets more and more intense until the end of the climax, yep. but there's these points where things are going to turn in the story, and um, and I think about, uh, I think about that conflict a lot, because um, that's how I got, you know, like thinking about um, Grim Fandango when I started. I just wanted to have a world with little paper mache skeletons. That was my main impulse. I was like, I want to see a world with paper mache skeletons. And our art director was like, well, okay, you're the skeleton in a skeleton world. What do you do? Like, skeleton things? <laughs> and I was like, I had that moment of, oh, this idea sucks. Oh, it's so stupid. <laughs> and I had that note in my book. It's like, oh, screw this game. <laughs> <laughs> Did you and, have a star um, beside that one? Did I what? Did you have a star beside that one? Yeah, such a star. star <laughs> with a sad face inside of it. Um, it was upside down star. And I was like, Heavy metal. Okay, so um, <laughs> I'll wait fifteen years and make that game. Yeah. <laughs> and um, what was the question? Uh, the question was about structure, and you were talking oh, about. Oh, oh, yeah. Because then I started. I was also really into uh, film noir movies, and it might be just completely random that it was just getting into reading Raymond Chandler and uh, watching uh, Humphrey Bogart movies. And um, eh, but I did start. You know, I saw Chinatown around that time, and thinking about that that great. Um, kind of scheme that the bad mm. guys had in that. It had an gr- awesome, one of the best villains of all time, and also um, just had a, he had this crazy, pl- the, the, the way the plan became uncovered was really fun, and so I was like, I want to have a plan like that in, uh, in, um, in Grim Fandango, so it was going to be like a real estate scam, 
But I was like, well, this can't be real estate because who would want to stay in the land of the dead? You want to move on to the mm. ninth underworld. And so it just kind of evolves. So I guess I should mention stealing from movies. It's totally fine as long as no one can tell by the time they're done. Or, or you don't get up in front of stage and, on a stage in front of 300 people and tell them that you stole yeah. ideas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, mean, <laughs> I, I mean, I do that all the time. But I think is, um, for me, it's about you, if you really break down the thing you like, the thing you like want to steal, the thing just really like looking at, well, why do I like this? Like, what, what is the thing about this? And really break it down to its like atomic things that you like and then build it back up again. And by the time you build it back up again, it's totally your own idea. Yeah. It's just that it has that quality that you wanted to have. Um, so I, I'm really interested in the kind of the three acts as a structure. Like how have you found mapping that to games? Which it's much, I mean, Warren last night was talking about the idea of pacing. Um, and obviously, if you're in a film, you've got this very sort of rigid and regimented pacing. Whereas a game, it's you know expands and contracts based on the player's ability. Yeah. Like how how do you find meshing those two kind of th those things which are in tension with each other a lot of the time? Yeah, people seem tolerant in games of all kinds of different structures and lengths. Of course, like some people really want a, a game to go on for ninety hours and play it forever, and um, uh, uh, some people don't. And some games don't let themselves do that. It really, yep. I guess, depends on the gameplay. Um, but for me, I guess I like I like I like I personally like games that are um, that have something happening. Even if a lot of things are non-linear in the game, uh, there's some still linear progression towards something. Like I yep. feel like I'm building towards something, and something exciting is going to happen when I get there. So not every game has to have that, and different players, you know, don't necessarily want that in their. But that's something that I like, and maybe because mm. I'm really busy and I know that I need to get done with this. No, but. <laughs> I actually am really suspicious of people in the games industry because we are, we ha all have a lot of games to play, you know, because we've got to, we want to play everything. And so yep. there is this pressure of like when the game starts to take too long, of like, come on, get over it already. And uh, I don't know if that's valid or, or if that's the way that um, regular players play games. And yeah, frequently you find yourself that you, you have to accept that you're not the audience mm -hmm. as well. You're, you're something else. Um, so I want to move on to kind of more production uh, topics and especially like the integration of, of these story ideas <clears throat> with mechanics. Because um, obviously like the, the games that you've made and the games that, that Double Fine have made have all been mechanically quite different while being, having different stories but also having similar themes. Like, How do you go about marrying those ideas to what you want the player to do over and over again? Hmm. Um, uh, that's a good question because it is different. And a lot of the adventure games I've I, I done the gameplay mechanic is roughly set, and so it is really just about finding new settings mm -hmm. and stories and characters for them. Um, so, you're, so you're not, you do think about, you know, we did change not just the interface, but the verb structure for Full Throttle, because like Ben was an action kind of guy, and so he, you know, he wouldn't have as many verbs in his head all the time. He'd have like a fist and a boot, and a, <laughs> you know. And so we do, we do think about that for sure. But um, uh, with Psychonauts, it was, uh, I did have an idea for the kinds of activities I'd want the player to do. They want to do this platforming and puzzle solving, have an inventory and have powers. And um, that led to kind of actually coming up with story justifications for that. I mm. mean, I knew it was going to be about a psychic kid, but I think, I think um, if I remember correctly, I probably came up with that. He's also an acrobat, which would explain why he has all these abilities to do all this great platforming. And so um, you can go both ways. You're either trying to help support a gameplay mechanic by coming up with a story that makes it make sense, or, or you come up with a gameplay mechanic to explore some fantasy that you're trying to tell the story. And that balance is, is clearly important, um, mm -hmm. like in the games, like making sure that the fiction and the, the mechanical aspects mesh 
mm-hmm. well. Like, is that is that a is that a difficult process within was it for you and for Double Fine, or is it something that just you've done enough that you kind of go, oh, we we can solve this problem? Um, I guess it's hard. I never it, the way that you are describing it. I don't know if I come at it from that same angle because right. it always seems to happen just at the same time. Yep. Like the game, like as a holistic thing for me, kind of comes together, and all all the same time, the ideas of the gameplay and the ideas of the story are all kind of mixed together. Because, um, like, I don't finish one and then okay. and do the other for sure. Okay, so they're they're actually just part of the process. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, and so, how do you take those and and communicate them to the other disciplines? Because you've kind of gone from your idea and then you've written in your notebook and then you've produced this document, and then obviously you need to produce things for artists and produce things for programmers. What's that mm-hmm. process look like? So we've done different things, you know, for, you know, for adventure games. For all our games, we do storyboards for all the scenes, you know, and we'll just, but it starts with it, just a verbal pitch. Like, I still think that's, you know, I'm, I'm a little anti-document in that it's because most, I'm a procrastinator and I don't want to, some people are really great, I get, like Lee Petty, who did stacking, will just, he takes the train to work and he'll create documents all, all you know, and then his team really, like, appreciates that because he has a big, uh, you know, a, a script that tells you what's going to happen. And I'm more like, well, I'll, I'll tell you about it. And so I, <laughs> I talk about it. And I guess part of the reason I like that is that I, I'm lazy. I don't want to write things down. And, but also, um, I feel like you have, from the beginning of your game, because I, I know about the, you know, the pitching and, the, and then the publisher relations and then the press juggernaut that hopefully happens at the end, you're going to have to get used to explaining what's cool about your story. And it's like it takes just a lot of practice to do that. It's mm-hmm. so like starting from day one with your elevator pitch, kind of like with the team. Because the first time you pitch it, the first time I pitched um, this new Kickstarter game to Scott, I could tell it was really a rough, bumpy pitch, and I wasn't really doing that good of a job. And you've got to get, you do it again and again and again, so that by the time you're actually talking to the press about it, you, you can tell it quickly and make it sound exciting. Yep. So I guess I like it. I'm just verbally pitching it to people. Um, and even now in our Kickstarter game, people are like, are there documents that I can look up stuff? I was like, no, you just got to meet with me. I'll <laughs> tell you all about it. Uh, and eventually it'll turn into... Um, depending on the project, some form of uh, storyboards. We use a lot in our company now internal forums, you know, because it used to be a very kind of email-driven company. It was just annoying everybody because it would be these huge email threads, mm-hmm. and then people would wonder, like, how did we resolve that thing about the character? And it's like, well, it was in that email thread, and people were, like, digging through, and it was breaking the mail server. And so we set up these internal forums, and we'll have, like, each project has a forum, and each you will know, have, like, a concept art thread, and the people can both post their concept art and then also comment on each other on, on, the, on the art. And then there's also a record, like, you can go back easily and, and look up, like, which character did we end up with in that? And you can actually find the thread and find out where it stopped. And so we'll share stuff that way. Um, sometimes I type up designs on Google Docs and share them with people. Um, it, it really, if there's a special thing about the game that needs explaining, it might require, like, charts and, um, and diagrams and... And our designers will probably go, you know, in Brew Legend we had a, a designer who figured out like the combat system mm-hmm. and the and she figured out the um you know, it started as it started as like a lot more like of an RTS type thing. You know, so there was like all these mock ups and stuff that were made in Maya and um just a lot of different uh, people from different sides, different disciplines were actually pushing forward. So it really isn't about me handing down all the documents to the team, but kinda of like tasking each discipline to come up with their their own documents, mm. which is another great trick if you're lazy. That sounds good. Yeah. Um, and how do you sort within that process? How do you how do you handle feedback? Like, is it is it a hugely collaborative process, or are you sort of trying to keep it small at the start oh. and then slowly grow it out, or is it just every man for themselves sometimes? <laughs> I mean, part of the challenge for me is figuring out, like, trying to be honest and fair about what I want feedback on and what I don't. 
because I think it's frustrating for people when you solicit feedback and you and then you're like, well, I'm I'm not really listening to that, but thanks for your <laughs> feedback because you know it's just wasting everyone's time. But I um, you know, because I can tell, um, like there's things that I want to happen. I definitely want to have an idea for a game. Like I can see, like, like sometimes I can see the ending scene really clearly. I have no idea what the middle part is, but there's certain things that are really clear to me. And it kind of reserved those as the battles that I'm going to be very firm on, mm-hmm. and the rest of it, you know, leaving people with a lot of freedom to interpret interpret stuff, and trying to be clear and honest with the team about, like, you know, this. I know we want to fight about this one thing, but I can tell you that um, I, I'm going to win this fight because this is the thing I really care about. And, you know, yep. so they don't. They go, okay, all right, I'll, I'll work <laughs> on something else. Um, but the, way, the initial thing you were asking about is how. Um, I, I guess just I'm, I'm how much feedback you want, yeah, yeah. and because a lot of it is just knowing this parts of the idea that I don't I don't know at all. It's, you know, it's often like, you know, something in the um, I can't figure out what the bad guys plan or something, and I'll solicit ideas like that. Like, what do you think? And then, but in the beginning, like once I've decided to make a game of a certain, um, like I'm going to do this heavy metal game, I don't want feedback like well, you shouldn't do a heavy metal game. You know, like that's like okay, that's not helping. Cause I'm, <laughs> I'm going to do it. So I want you to tell me how soon you could have the engine done or something, <laughs> you know, like, so. But you definitely get feedback by, you know, it's really easy to come up with ideas that add a year onto your schedule without watching, yep. you know. Like, it's just like, let's do online multiplayer. And, like, um, you know, if you do that, we don't have any of those kind of programmers, you know. So it is good to, to get feedback on, on actually the, the designs, believe it or not. Yep. And before before we throw it to audience questions, I just want to ask about dialogue, like how you approach that process, and also how that process connects with the kind of the technical and artistic challenges. Like, do you start with dialogue and then give that to artists, or do you see characters and then suddenly the character dialogue is there? Um, and what what are you actually producing mm-hmm. and reacting to when you're writing the dialogue for your games? I mean, like even 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 though some of the first things I might have ideas for in a game like that seen with death in the hospital room. Some of the ideas might be dialogue. Mm-hmm. Dialogue is usually the last thing that's produced for me and because um, uh, I want to know everything first before I do it yep. because the act of writing dialogue for me is kind of like, like the very last step of actually writing the dialogue is kind of like a, is more like acting. Like I've, I've done this whole process of, like when I start with the game idea, I'm like, okay, I want to do a game about bikers. So I'm going to read Hunter S. Thompson. I'm going to read every single book I can about bikers. I'm going to absorb everything there is to know about bikers. And then I'm, I'm just going to be this biker factory knowledge, <laughs> knowledge of font and wisdom, which obviously you just look at me, obviously, and I know everything there is to know about, you know. <laughs> okay, I learn, just absorb as much as I can. And then, you know, do those, story, those character sheets where you're yeah. answering questions about characters in some form or another. Getting to know the backstories of the characters is really essential. And, and then getting to know what the obstacles are in the story and then sitting down to write and then it's more like okay now I am Ben Throttle or I am Adrian Rupberger or I'm, I'm going to be that character and I'm going to improvise my dialogue and I'm improvising it's like you're improvising all the dialogue in the scene and you write the scene pretty quickly and then there's a lot of redra- like drafts and revisions and stuff like that but the actual act is a little bit more like um, acting I yeah. guess do you do that weird writer thing where you actually like shut the door and then, like, act out the characters, like, physically. Like, no, <laughs> I've never done that. Does that help? It, that it, helps, it helps me. It's, that's a trick. You can, you can try that and see what I'm works for you. I'm going to try that. But what if you're a bad actor and you're like, oh, this <laughs> character's not working? If you're a bad actor, that's why you close the door. <laughs> I think you, you close the door, you put a little sign up there, and you make sure the cat is somewhere Ooh. else. I've seen that with the, um, you like, this bonus features on the Pixar disc sometimes. You'll see animators doing that yeah, yeah, yeah. in the room, and they'll act out, and then they'll videotape it, and then go 
and then I put it on the special features and everyone go you remember that time you acted out yeah (laughs) (laughs) thanks for putting that on the uh, DVD guys Um, so we have about uh, 10 or 15 minutes uh, for audience questions from Tim if we could restrict them to uh, ones about story that'd be great because Tim has uh, a session after this and also the session this evening so wait what's that the next session is about creativity and commerce oh so okay no business questions you can try it, but I'll just shut them down. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we might go here, and I think there was some on this side and then some up the back there. Hi, uh, Tim. Um, I was just wondering, um, when you're, you mentioned uh, free writing and, and filling up notebooks full of, full of ideas, um, I was just wondering at what point in the writing process you actually go back to those notebooks and pull out what's relevant. Uh, is it immediately after or a week later or... Um, it's it's usually when the uh, real document is due. So like I'll, I'll I'll free write and free write, and then oh the people are on the team now and they actually have to start working. I guess they need an actual document to read or they need to start storyboarding, and so then I'll go f- back and I'll make it an official like word process document out of all those things. So it has more to do with more to do with that I guess. And that's a great and that's that's still also a useful process because you don't you come up when you write that document with more ideas than you had in the notebook too. You know so. Um, it's really not. A, it's really not a timing. A timing thing. It just it seems these natural chunks that present themselves to you. Like I have an overview. Like when you hit these milestones of, okay, I know roughly about the entire story. I know what the good guys and the bad guys and how the acts are going to lay it out. It's time to write that up, you know. And then I, I'm pretty clear now about how, um, you know, certain systems. You know, I knew how the what the interface should be like. I should write. I should write that up. So it's really about when they're done more than anything else. Yeah. Hi, Tim. Um, well, <laughs> it's just like, it's like the voice of God when um, we talk. Yes, God. <laughs> I want to talk. No, um, uh, I was interested in uh, finding out a bit more about Day of the Tentacle, um, as that's probably the only one so far that is, was a sequel in ways, because uh, it was a sequel to Maniac Mansion. Um, how did you come about the development of that in terms of story? And then are there any challenges in terms of Building onto a world that's already there, mm-hmm. um, and and adding onto that. Yeah, um, we, um, you know, Ron Gilbert made Maniac Mansion, and then Dave Grossman and I worked on Dave, uh, Monkey Island together. You know, kind of sharing an office, being partners. So we decided to co-lead the next project. And Ron's like, "How about you do this sequel to my game?" I already wrote up Gary Winnick, and I wrote up this um, short, um, like a few pages document about roughly like. You know Bernard and, and his friends going back to the mansion and about this broken time machine, um, and we um, we started brainstorming with Ron and I think Noah Falstein and a couple other people um, just in this room just talking about where we could go with those characters and um, it was really it was very puzzle focused from the very beginning because like what's a good time travel puzzle, which I think is like a, a good way to start sometimes just like what can you do with time travel you know whatever your special thing is in your game like what can where where can that lead to and not try to worry about how to fit them in anywhere yet. Just think, what are the possibilities of, the, of this new mechanic or new conceit? Um, and I remember at one point Noah going, like, I think we need to focus on story now because we didn't really have one. So, um, And it's still not a huge, I mean, story and data tentacle. There definitely stuff happens in it. But it's not like, I don't think Laverne actually grows emotionally or anything like that in the <laughs> game. So it's not that kind of story. <laughs> so it's a you know, lowercase story. Um, so we, uh, we, it was really, yeah, it was always very st- uh, puzzle focused and just meeting and brainstorming and 
and then storyboarding out all the, it was the first time we'd ever storyboarded out a game. Like it, before then it was just like, Ron would go downstairs and tell the artist to draw something new every day. And, You need to, oh, you need to, I thought that was the alarm going off. You need, <laughs> Any chance you can revisit that world? Uh, you need to talk to George Lucas about that. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best answer to any question. Yeah, you have to talk to George Lucas. He's surprisingly Sorry the answer to a lot of questions in my life. <laughs> you can just use that for everything. Can, can you go and get some milk from the shops? You'll have to talk to George Lucas <laughs> about that. And he'll CG all in, I'm post. <laughs> So you maybe go there and then could just go back and then come down the front. Okay, hello. Um, Mehmet here. Um, um, I was just going to ask, how do you deal with the writer's block thing? Like, let's say you're halfway through the project and all of a sudden, oh, shit, I don't know where to go with this. Uh, I, maybe you don't get that because yeah. you're like, I mean, the, the two ways, <laughs> one of them is that free writing thing. That's the main advantage of that is it just starts you going and getting momentum. Um, and the other one is talking to people. In some ways, they're... They're very similar edges of the same thing, which is to like put your mind in verbal mode, you know. So if you go, a lot of times I was stuck on Grimm and I would just have lunch with our art director or something, and sometimes they would say something that was a great idea that would get me going. But sometimes it was just by by talking to them, I would start saying things that were helpful, you know. So um, it's it's really just alternating between being locked up in isolation for a time, and that that can really only take you so far, and then and then being out and talking to people about the idea having their ideas um, inspire you to go farther. That's, that's how, I think. We had one up here, and then we might go to the middle here, and then down the front. And the last thing I'll say about that is because I have like side projects and things that I w I've been meaning to write and just never have gotten around to writing for years, and I think there's just proof of the fact that there really is no such thing as writer's block. There's just lack, you, you not working. I mean, it's just like, <laughs> you just it's really easy to go, oh, I don't have any ideas for that thing if it's just been sitting on the shelf and you haven't really touched it in years. But if you drag it down and you actually start writing notes on it, and you won't have any ideas for maybe a few pages, but eventually just the act of just chipping away at it um, in terms of just sheer mental labor will get past that, and that's all there is. There's nothing really romantic about it. You just have to work. I think that's one of the truths about being a writer is there is very little romantic about it. It's just getting, <laughs> getting, getting up every day and producing pages of work. Yeah, and yeah. we and that, that, a lot of writers have said that. Like I heard Vonnegut, I bring him up so much, but like he talked about like you really just approach it like a nine-to-five job. You wake up in the morning, you write from eight to five, or maybe just you work three hours a day or whatever, but you just write, and that's all there is to it. And some days you have good days, and sometimes you have bad days, and it's, and it's just and it's a job. Yeah, it's totally yeah. a job. So we, we had a question up here, and then there was the middle, and then down the front. But you pretend it's romantic when you're picking. You up totally the pretend. Yeah, I totally. Tell, I know you do. Women. I know you do. You're like I'm a writer. I got patches on my elbows. Because girls love writers girls and patches. Dig tweed. Those are the things. That <laughs> they love tweed and patches. <laughs> um, so there was one a question up the back somewhere. Someone uh, yeah. The um, uh, it seem it seems like a lot of the successful game stories are comedies as opposed to tragedies. Right, Hello. Find you. I'm gonna find ah, you. Yes, go. Hello. Oh there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. It seems like most of the successful game stories like uh, Portal Two, Grim Fandango, that kind of thing, they're um, comedies as opposed to tragedies. Do you think that's just like a part of video games, the better at doing comedy than tragedy, or um, I think um, uh, I think that's really interesting. I've always I've always I thought, I, I've often thought about how hard it would be to make a um, a tragedy in a game, or at least a kind of um, like the ending of a European movie, like a down ending. You know, like let's end and like nothing. You know, the hero <laughs> dies. You know, and that's and that's cool because. Um, 
in some ways that would be really frustrating if that was you and is different than a movie. Like it seems okay, like you leave a movie feeling like crap because that's what the artist wanted to do. You could, a lot of people accept that when they go see a, a foreign film. But like um, <laughs> um, in games, like you did all that work. You'd ha- I, I, I don't know the solution to that, but I think it is an interesting problem to think about because like you as a player did all that work, then you failed at the end of it and that's the success of the game. That would feel really strange unless somehow you separated it out so that what was perceived as the tragedy is actually still um, you getting a reward for all your work. And I think there's an interesting, you should make that game. Because that sounds hard and I don't want to do that because <laughs> easy things. But I think it's great because I think there's a lot of things that people think won't work in games and then one person figures it out and they're like, then everyone does it and, and imitates it. I think that's sort of there are different like, fashions. Mm-hmm. And it's suddenly like everything is linear, or, or every every story has got an angry space marine. We've been we've been in that phase for a couple of years now, though. <laughs> Hopefully, that's about to break. Um, so, do we have one down the front, and then we'll come to the middle? Morning, Tim. Morning. Um, when uh, games went from disc to CD, and then your characters went from having voices that were on-screen text to like genuine voices, did that change your process at all? Yeah, it made things a lot more complicated. I mean, there's definitely an upside to having voice, but I remember how it changed uh, the complexity of the task a lot. And it was it worked out really well in the first one we did in Day of the Tentacle because we pretty much finished the game, and then it took a year to make that game, and then we just took six months to actually voice it, and we polished the game during that time. Um, but the, everything, all the stories and puzzles were locked before we recorded the dialogue. Um, but since then, it's been hard because basically all it does is takes your higher your total... You know, Monkey Island, we were changing dialogue the day before it shipped. And it's not just voice, but localization that's, that's changed that a lot. So you, um, you, know, you take the amount of time it takes to localize your game and the amount of time it takes to record and edit and pr- implement all the voice, and you just push that into your schedule, and then you have to lock your voice just that much earlier. Um, and this is probably just really normal now to anyone who makes games now, but uh, coming from a period where you didn't have to do that, it was like, oh, I had the dialogue done in a month. Oh, my God. So used to just like, because in adventure games, you find out the day before you ship that there's this cr- incredibly hard puzzle that no one can solve or there's this thing that should work that doesn't work, and you, you, you feel like you need the flexibility to fix that. But um, we just lost that luxury a long time ago. That's probably better. Force us to be disciplined, the disciplined <laughs> non-procrastinators that we are today. Rom- and, and it's romantic being disciplined as well. Mm-hmm. And it, but it does it, it romantic and yeah and um it, I was reaching with that one I looked at it. it as far as the um it does change you you have to make your writing you have to think about you have to do a little bit of what you're talking about where you act out scenes in your head I mean I do I don't really act them out but I do mumble my dialogue to myself as I'm writing you know a little bit like how does that sound like a sound? serial killer like a serial killer exactly <laughs> yeah I'm an everything but serial killer um everything but killing in case that wasn't clear. <laughs> um, but you know because a lot of stuff looks good on paper um, when you write it and then you read it and it's very awkward you know it just does, it doesn't work when spoken and a lot of if you've ever like doing interviews I, I'd say things that they sound like normal conversation when you're talking because you use all these you interrupt sentences like I just did you, you, you know you, and then you see it written out and it looks like you're a, a moron and, <laughs> and maybe uh, maybe it's just I'm a moron. But, I mean, there's a big difference between what works on, on text and what works on, on invoice, for sure. Um, we might need to make this the last question because we are running oh out of time. Gosh. So no Hi. pressure. Hello. <laughs> um, 
um, since meeting my partner a few years ago, he's been encouraging me to play your games, and I hadn't really had any contact with them before that. So I only played like um, Grim Fandango earlier this year for the first time and really enjoyed it. Awesome. Um, so I was wondering if, well, my question is, do you think that there might be something timeless or, you know, that's just sort of endlessly appealing about your games that people <laughs> are still playing them like, you know, a decade later for the first time and, and still uh, really yes. enjoying them? <laughs> <laughs> How do I not? How do I answer that and not sound super? Do you think there's something timelessly appealing? I mean, thank you for playing the games and for 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 liking them. Um, uh, what do I say about that question? I mean, it's hard because it's, it, there's some, definitely something not timeless about actually getting them to run on your computer. <laughs> Grim Fandango was unplayable the day it shipped because um, we didn't have a 486 in our office and we hadn't tested the game on a 486. We only had. 386s. For all you kids out there, that's a really slow computer. So <laughs> it, when it ran faster, it wouldn't even run. But I mean, uh, I, I mean, we tried to. I mean, uh, I don't know what to say about that. We try to make them good when we make them, and about emotional themes, I think that apply beyond a certain time period for sure. You know, like, um, and I, I hope they appeal. But it's, it's funny. You do worry about like, cer definitely certain types of gameplay are not. Um, as appealing over, over time, people get to, you know start to expect different things. The things like um, I don't know, like the tank. There's some tank controls in, in Grim. You have many ways of playing that game. You can play it, and, but uh, at the time, it, it, and like now, it seems like why did you have tank controls for the skeleton character? And um, when we were making that, it was very popular. Like my mom would say about when we look at why she was wearing this crazy outfit in the '60s. I'm like, I swear that was really popular. But it's like at the time it seemed normal because Resident Evil and Tomb Raider and like a lot of games had that same. And Grimm was based on um, or inspired a lot the mechanics from BioForge, which was a 3D graphic adventure. But it was cool because you could just push forward and your character would walk and the camera angles would cut. And it was so cinematic looking. The camera angles were cutting, but you were still walking forward, um, which you can't do with other kinds of controls. I've gotten way off topic on your questions, but I just want to say thanks for playing. I'm glad you liked them. <laughs> Um, I, I, I think you're, I think there is that because the games are always about people, and this was something we didn't get to talk about. But like that, that compassion and that idea about creating things for for people about the broader spectrum of the human experience. I think that's what makes them timeless. Like even even when they were being made, they were still unique, and they they were about character, and they were about story, and about the the, the spaces that those characters occupied. And I think that even if some of the mechanics are clunky, they still have that. What the what? <laughs> I can say that. You Sorry. Can't, you can't say that. On that note. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I, th I think that the games are. They have, that, they have that quality that people will constantly return to them and, and, um, and find new things and re constantly revisit those same themes that, that were in there originally. Because those themes are never going to go out of fashion, I think. That's awesome. <laughs> That's um, great. Can everyone join me in thanking Tim for his time this Thank morning? Thank you. Thanks for coming. You have been listening to an Acme podcast. For more recordings of talks and live events, go to Acme Channel and the Acme website.